Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora e te whanau. welcome to the Country Life Summer Series, I'm Duncan Smith. We're looking back at some of the stories we brought you in 2023. And today, Sally's at a dairy shed with a difference, and Leah finds out how a farmer has turned around his depleted land. But first, we're heading to Charleston on the West Coast, which, surprisingly, is home to a grove of exotic plants, including bananas. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is with John Collier, a self-taught botanist who wants locals to start planting edible perennials, not commonly found in the region. He already has them growing in his nursery and food forest. We're on the north side of the Nile, or Waitakere River, surrounded on pretty much four sides by native bush and listening to some distant sounds of the birds on the hill. How much land do you own here? Uh, so our, our property is uh, 62 hectares and probably about 61 of that is relatively mature native forest. And yeah, there's 20 metre limestone cliffs hiding in the forest there that we can't see because it's all behind the trees. Mm. Tell me what you do here. Okay, on, on this piece of land? Yeah. So uh, what, what we do is we, we trial a lot of stuff. I, I'd probably say the key word is research and I guess trialling as well. And a lot of it is new crops or existing crops in slightly different ways. Uh, very, lots of very unusual stuff. So how many plants have you got in total? How many different varieties um, do you think? Different varieties or source, seed sources, probably three 300 I'd estimate. Uh, there's at least a thousand plants at last count, and that was quite a while ago. We're probably close to two thousand. And you've got the nursery in a big clearing, beautiful plants. So uh, the the nursery at the moment, I, I, I have a full time, mostly full time desk job. So I'm a software engineer. I work four days a week f- for a Wellington company, but definitely we're looking to scale the nursery and get some local people employed in the nursery. Yes. Um, so you're turning this nursery into a business. So what we want to make is something called a social enterprise. So it's kind of a hybrid between a business and a charity. So in the case of a charity, you need a board, and the board can sort of control how the charity evolves, whereas in a social enterprise, I can still be in charge. But you, you're still you're not making any profit. It all goes to the employees, to the, to the back into the business yes. and to the community. So the ideal way that things will go is that we will get the community growing all of, all of these different food plants, whatever succeeds the best. And if they do so well that we then go out of business, that's what we consider a success. This is purely just how do we get food plants into the community and change how the region is growing food. Yeah. So, yeah. Show me some of your uh, favourite plants. Ooh. Uh, just step over this over here. Yeah, so let's see what we have here. 
One plant we grow quite a lot of is lacuma. This is a lacuma over here. Okay. How would you describe that? So lacuma is a South American sort of mountain plant. The fruit is roughly the same size as an avocado, dark green kind of skin. Now the inside of the fruit, it's a very vibrant orange colour, very rich orange, a bit like a, one of the orange kumaras. And I describe the flavours as being like a triangle. So at the very top of the triangle, you have sort of a maple syrup or a butterscotch flavour. Say the, the bottom left of the triangle, you have a sort of kumara sweet potato flavour. And then the bottom right is sort of a dates or raisins flavour. Oh, sounds delicious. Yes, it is. And depending on which variety you have, it can be sort of anywhere in the triangle. So most of them are generally in the middle. Some are very much like tree potatoes. There's not a lot of flavour to them, but they're very big. And then there are some which are quite small and very heavy on the mm. maple mm. syrup flavour. Can you grow them to a ripened state in this climate here? Untested. The oldest plant in the area would be under five years old. So it's very, very much untested. And, and that's what we do. We, we want to try these plants to see if they can get a foothold locally and be grown. Oh no, this is a fig, isn't it? Yep, that's yeah. a fig. And this is an unusual plant here. This is Yang Mei. One of the other names is Mountain Peach. It's in the family called Mirica or sometimes Morella. This fruit has a berry, roughly strawberry-sized. And again, it's very rare in the country. The only plants that I know of that are fruiting are in Northland. The fruit tastes somewhere between a herbal strawberry raspberry flavour. And it's a nitrogen fixer, which means that it, it supplies its own fertiliser from the air. Um, there's some jaboticabas here, so about 10 different varieties. Brazilian grape tree, again, totally untested locally. They grow fine. There's no problems with them surviving outside. Yeah. But who knows how well they'll fruit. Yeah. Where do you get your seeds from? So th there is imp import pathways for um, individuals to import seeds from overseas. It's called the basic seed category on the plant biosecurity index. There's about 20,000 species that are on that index uh, as basic. And as long as they are clean, clean seeds, uh, labelled with the Latin name on the seed packet, and the package declares the contents as seed for sowing, as long as all those three conditions are met, then, then it can just come in. Uh, there's a few others we've imported with phytosanitary certificates, such as these. These, uh, yes. Because of myrtle rust, they have to be fumigated, and that requires uh, a declaration by the seed seller that they've fumigated the seeds. So for some of these plants, it's going to take a long time before you yep. can actually determine yeah. whether they will fruit successfully in this area. Yep. Uh, definitely the most long-term of that would be the bunya, which we can go have a look at over here. So this is a bunya here. Uh, that's an Australian native plant. Oh, it's a bit prickly. It's very prickly. <laughs> it's native to sort of Queensland, two areas in Queensland. It's well known for eventually producing a rugby ball-sized cone. <laughs> and inside the cone would be, um, how would we describe those? Well, strawberry-sized nuts, large strawberry-sized. And they roughly taste sort of halfway between a chestnut and a pine nut and a very, very important food for Aboriginal Australians and just a great item to have. So in Australia, there's a bit of a renaissance with, with the bunya and people are really picking up the, the things you can do with it. And it's really, 
the last few years that there's been a lot of support and um, bunyas grow fine in this part of the country but you're looking at 30 plus years to get them to fruit. You are here for the long haul. Yep, definitely. (laughs) When did you first become interested in plants? Hmm. I've grown plants on and off definitely since being a young kid. Uh, I've grown, I think the first thing was probably flowers. There was ferns in there, there was cacti, there was carnivorous plants, there was medicinal plants, Uh, it, it it was all in there. But I think when, when we lived overseas for a couple of years and while we were overseas, I think that's when it really clicked that we are very dependent on going to the supermarket for our food. Pretty much everyone is. And uh, as we've seen just in the last few years, the, the, the feeling of being comfortable at the supermarket can quite quickly change from one of being comfortable to being a bit more like, oh, oh there's prices. Uh, and, and so that's why we wanted to get people to grow their own food, but in a way in which it's not super high effort so everything we grow here is perennial so one one thing that a lot of gardeners who who grow annuals will know is that if you miss a year you don't really get any food if you leave your bed a year there's no food whereas in a a perennial situation like like an orchard or a food forest if you don't do any maintenance for a year you just you can still go harvest avocados you can still harvest citrus the apples are all there uh, the bananas are still there and so that, that's really what we think is, is a big part of the food security is these perennial plants that just grow and then when you need them you can, you can use them. Mm. What's that plant over there with the big, lush, dark green leaves? So that plant, uh, it's a loquat. And yeah, loquat is, if you haven't tasted it, it's a bit like a mango, apricot, plum kind of thing. Um, definitely one of my favourite fruits. And do you know if that will grow to a fruiting stage here? Yes, there is uh, fruiting loquats on the west coast already. Uh, they're, they're relatively tough and you can grow them pretty much in the entire country, I think. I think only some inland parts of the east coast of the South Island are, are going to be too cold. Uh, they can handle sort of close to minus 10, I think. And as long as the, the flowering period is not too cold or not too wet, then you're going to get a good crop. Do you have many plants here that have edible leaves? We have a lot of plants with edible leaves. One example at the back there is called huakatai. Uh, that's in the marigold family. I'll go grab a leaf. There you go. Thank you. The first taste I get is uh, very much passion fruit, but then it quickly kind of goes into mint. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit bitter, this leaf. Mm. So we're in winter rather than sort of early spring, and so maybe those leaves have been on the plant mm. a fair while. This would be nice in salads or for cooking. Yep, South American cooking, it's uh, definitely a key flavour. We grow a lot of taro, so I've probably got about 10 varieties and species at the moment. Mm. Some of the old Maori varieties that have been grown for sort of hundreds of years and came from some very old uh, plantations. There's an island in Northland that our variety of red stem Maori taro came from. And... It's, it's still early days. The next stage of the program is to start sort of taste testing them and to see what grows best locally. But, yep, that's, that's stage two. Beside the nursery, you've got several large banana trees. Yep. So those are actually our ornamental bananas. We do have edible bananas up the hill that are also fruiting, and we'll walk up to those shortly. Mm. Um, the one on the left is a species called Musa basho, or the basho banana. And 
we grow that to uh, as, a, as what we call a mulch plant. So it sucks up nutrients and in winter all of those nutrients are stored safely in the banana tissues uh, and they're not getting washed out of the soil. And then when spring comes then we can chop the banana and sort of feed that stem back to other plants. And it's very high in nitrogen and very nutritious for other plants. And um, so that's the Abyssinian banana, the Musa basho, and Musa sicamensis, which is the Nepalese sort of mountain banana. And the, the, the sort of the goal with all of those is to see what, what is the best at sucking up nutrients and holding on to them over winter. Well, let's go and look at the edible banana plants that you're growing. Yep. We're just coming up to the older banana patch now. So here we have Goldfinger and Messiluki. Nobody recommends another banana more highly than this. And so, yeah, we've been getting them into the community and getting people growing them. And we're coming up now to a couple of the terraces. So here is a Mexicola avocado seedling that we, we grew from some seed that escaped from a very old avocado orchard. The, the skin is very thin and actually you eat the skin, it's peppery. And we're aiming to get this fruiting soon and sort of, and then we can do a bit more controlled hybrids and that kind of stuff. Mm. When you say we, who are you talking about? Oh, me and my wife. Um, she does help me a fair bit. But also I've, I've got a fairly good um, network locally of people who help. So some of the other stuff people help locally with is, uh, say, the citrus. Uh, I've got people locally who help with avocados and plant out a bunch of seedlings. And through that process we look to select better stuff that we can, we can use locally. Um, I've got about 10 different species of ginger. And, yeah, we're, we're trying to find, again, and rank what are the best sort of four or five gingers for the area. So one of the gingers we're quite keen to, to get planted soon is an Australian native ginger. It, it's fairly similar to lemongrass, but with a sort of a ginger hint to it. Mm. And it, it smells and tastes like lemon. We've come... About 10 metres further up, and uh, what have we got here? What we have here is actually a native species of the nettle family from the Kermadec Islands. And this is a plant you should probably cook, but the raw leaves taste like peas to me. Yeah, they do. Cooked peas. Yeah. That, that's one of the plants where there is no other recorded information of people eating it. Mmm. Now you've got heaps of shells scattered around the plants. So what, we'll, what we do is we spread them through the soil and we try and leave them sort of cup side up. And that way when they're sort of buried in the soil they, they're always going to act as a little reservoir of water. They also buffer the soil pH ever so slightly. Um, yeah, so here you can see the workers have dug the path a lot. This is a, a terrace in formation and we're about a meter above the the true soil level yeah. the terrace is about a meter and a half wide almost two meters at points there's uh, i haven't measured it but we're, we're looking at one two three sort of three and a half four four of them they're about at least 20 meters long so yeah that's close to 100 meters of um terrace a lot of plantable land 
Yeah, and as we're standing now, we can look down at one of the banana patches of a variety called Pisang Awak. It just means normal banana. <laughs> the Malaysian word sounds way more exotic. Yes. Uh, so that one there, there's now probably five or six pups, and we'll, we'll split those off in spring. And already there's starting to be a bit of a dent in the local area from bananas that we've supplied. So other people are starting to get fruit on their plants, and who knows, there could be, could be a lot more backyard bananas in the buller. John Collier, talking to Cosmo at his West Coast agroforestry nursery at Charleston on the West Coast. Next, Leah Tebbett meets Mohi Beckham, a farmer looking to the sky to help him on the land. He took over his Bay of Plenty farm five years ago, but it was in poor shape. It turns out he had more than just the land to heal. Over the beautiful wet season that we've had, our farm was underwater for quite a lot of it. The paddocks that actually survived, or the better paddocks out of our paddocks, are the ones we did the diverse pastures in. And look, I don't know, I still, I'm still learning why and how, but that's one thing I have noticed. Yeah, so literally the other, the other paddocks are just brown and rusty, rusty looking and it's, it's been a hard year, but that's, what I, that's one thing I do have noticed is, is the diversity, our diverse paddocks have, have actually survived better than the, the monoculture paddocks. It's raining in Otamarako, not far from Pukahina in coastal Bay of Plenty, where Mohi Beckham farms. The rain is something he's had to get used to in the past 18 months, as it seems like it never stops. So he decided to sit down with a cup of tea in the lounge, with a window the length of the wall, showcasing rolling paddocks that lead to the ocean. It's the backdrop of our conversation, where he tells me it was his brother who pushed him back into farming after his mother died. So we, yeah, we cruised around, I looked around the parts of the country, and this place seemed to be the best location. Rundown side of things, it was pretty rundown, like... We didn't realise how bad this, the state of the place was until we actually come onto the farm and check things out. So power, water, fencing, pasture was yeah, well, well below par. But um, took a while, we, we, we're getting there, but yeah. Silla Farm is around 220 hectares in total, milking over 400 cows. Alongside the dairy operation, there is around 50 hectares being developed into kiwifruit and avocado orchards but that has only come after a lot of hard work to get the land back to good shape. When you first came on farm, you obviously knew you wanted to, to make a difference on this bit of land, but did you know how and did you know what to do? Not at all, not at all. So I had a couple of f friends slash mentors. They, they kind of took me under their wing and I've never farmed on this part of the country. You know, it's, it's, it's a different type. Of, yeah, I'm more central plateau farming, so there's less... Pests, there's less weeds, there's less everything. Like this place just grows everything because of the the range of temperatures and the grass was nearly waist high across the whole farm off straight Kaikuya. People think that's a lot of feed, but you probably get more nutrition out of cardboard, to be honest. <laughs> that's how crap Kaikuya is. So we had to get the cows to chew it all down to lay the platform for us. So by then it was calving. Cows had lost quite a bit of condition, but they had to chew it down to get us through. And yeah, we just had to go through the process, so when, when spring came along, then we, we could actually put seed in the ground. But um, the cows lost a lot of weight over that whole time. We were milking twice a day as well. We were kind of farming for survival because we didn't know how the farm worked, what works well, the good paddocks, the bad paddocks, because they all kind of looked bad. So we got into undersowing, 
putting in different pasture species, going to a bit of cropping, just to try to turn over a bit more palatable, high-energy feed for the cows to produce on. And yeah, that was the first two years, a yeah, year and a half to two years. That takes us to about 2020, 2021. Yeah, yeah. And obviously at some point you've made a transition uh, again to put more focus on the land and, and the health of the land. What was the change that happened in yeah. you that made that happen for the land? So the, the, around the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, I, wasn't, I was always miserable and I didn't know why. Like We live on a beautiful farm and a beautiful whare. But I was, I was miserable a lot, and I didn't know why. And like, I went and saw a counsellor or a shrink or a psychiatrist, whatever they're called. We sat down, and she kind of, we got yarning, and she brought back all the childhood stuff. A lot of the stuff I believed in was from childhood, and because of what we were doing on farm at the time, it didn't gel well with me. Like, it, yeah, like the values were, they weren't, yeah, they weren't aligning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She made me realise that. And I come home, and to be honest, I kind of bit of a bit of a bit of a tear time. I started went into the paddocks. I was actually crying for a bit. I realised that what we were doing to our bodies, I was, I was probably doing to the soil. Like you know, like I wasn't doing the right thing anyway. And then kind of like the stuff my mum taught me growing up that I kind of put on the back burners, kind of opened up my eyes and realised what she was trying to teach me when I was a kid. So regenerative farming wasn't a word back then. Um, to this day, those gardens at, at the family homestead, topsoil from from here to Bling in Africa, man, like it's deep as. The food's beautiful now compared to what you can probably buy in a shop, but everything was just compost, everything was organic matter and love and karakia, like coming here and realising to me that I understand that way of farming. I understand the other way as well with the fertilisers and chemicals and whatever, and we still use it now, but we don't use it as much. We use more natural stuff to the earth. And, yeah, the whole thing, the whole concept came back from old lady. We developed a system over time. Yes, yeah, just kind of kind of taken off from there, apart from this last year. It's been, yeah, it was pretty awesome what, 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 what's happened on farm. And it's not even just at the grassroots level or the money level. It's the people, like people's well-being, our, our mental health really, really changed. And it was, it was actually quite amazing that it's actually like a whole system thing. In general, the regenerative movement seeks to build more resilient farm ecosystems, including waterways, from the soil upward. Mohi says he sees the soil as being like our blood, the foundation, and by creating better soil it creates better plants and better feed for the animals. But Mohi added another layer, people. We started up a little bit of a gym, kind of started running around doing push-ups in the paddock and then I started meeting their wives and they were saying how their mental health has come a long way since doing that and I was like sat back and realised like oh that's where the word diversity for us come into, come into play like we had a bunch of dudes just doing stuff instead of one guy working by himself you know you bounce ideas off each other you do whatever you buy each other a beer I don't know but there's, there's a connection there when you're isolated like, like a lot of farmers are you've just got your own thoughts and it's kind of you kind of get a bit stale and same with like in the paddock, we all just had grass. <laughs> and I was thinking, shucks, imagine if you only ate wheat bucks 24-7, that'll suck. And then that's how I saw the cows, and that can't be healthy. So I took that on board and then realised that the health of the plants actually were a lot more vigorous. Um, and realised because of the diversity, 
the microbiome of every plant. They actually they they share with each other what what's needed. Like if I need sugar, I'll jump to the neighbor's thing and they'll give me a cup of sugar because they've got some. I've got none. Same with the plant. Like this one gives off boron or this one gives that, and this one draws down nitrogen, and they all just feed off each other. From there. You took it a step further, I guess. You didn't just stay with the regenerative model, but you looked into the maramataka, which is the Māori lunar calendar. Mm. Where did that come from, I guess, first of all? Because you're Māori, but that's not something you knew much about, was it, growing up? Not really. Like, um, my mum's childhood, they did a bit of that up north, in the far north with, with the family gardens and that. But I've never really heard of um, anyone doing things like that to scale mm. yeah so for those that might not know what the maramataka is is there a way that you're able to explain it yeah so oh for for me the maramataka is it's most people probably a lot of people probably go off the fishing calendar which is the maramataka people made fun of me following the maramataka with the growing but they'll go fish on the high energy part of the lunar phase so all it is is just the moon gives off different energy at certain times of the month, so it'll be like the new moon, the full moon. And, yeah, certain parts of the lunar phases is when good things happen, good time to grow, good time to plant, and other times is not so much. So that's when, say, with those riparian planters, the low-energy days they'll have off work. Entwining the maramataka into his plan to turn the farm and his own health around, Mohi hired riparian planters who followed the lunar phases when planting along the waterways. Because they, they, they pulled data off as well, what they were doing, and they did say, like, if, I think it was like if you have 80% survival rate, you're doing really well, and that's it, the, the, conventional, the conventional guys are getting that. And these dudes were sitting around like 93% survival rate of plants. So that in itself was like, well, you know, instead of a 20% loss, you get a 7% loss, so you put that into a dollar term or a dollar figure, it's quite a lot. So if you put that into like a soil health or something that's living, then you realise, yeah, that's a massive difference. Remember that gym that Mohi mentioned earlier? Well, it's a large shed at the back of his house. It's better known in the community as the hub, where at times it's seen 35 people come at once to sweat it out. This is more of a gym than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, it has become a vision, to be honest. So you got everything. you got bench press, you got all the boxing gloves, all the kettlebells. Yeah, no, it's, it's also me. Like, um, what kind of people are coming along? Oh, mainly farmers, our local vet, some Fonterra workers, um, just in just local community, so it's, it's free. So we just open up to anyone. As long as you're a good bugger, you can come, really. So afterwards, so we might have a glass or two, but that's where the talking happened, and that's that other part of the mental health, you know, a sweat and some high fives and it's awesome and then we go sit on the deck and beautiful view and some, some good corridors and that's where I think a lot of the magic does happen is, is, is people talking. Yeah. I bet it's been a bit of a blessing though this year to oh, have that. Massive, massive, yeah. Even for myself, like it's, I, still, I still struggle a little bit here and there, especially with how bad things are going outside, but if it wasn't for this, I'd probably be in a worse state. And yeah, a few other people have, have mentioned that and so have some of the wives. And we have become really close. Yeah. To think, though, that you came here about five years ago and you've created all of this in that time. Like a, a whole community. Oh, nah, nah, but of us, everyone, hey, like... You're being, you're honestly nah. being humble because at the end of the day, you've changed the land as well, you've changed yourself and you've changed other people you know what I mean you must look back and be like far I've come a long way it's pretty cool like it's 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 it's, it's awesome and 
I'm used to being in our own communities, like we live in Central Plateau, so we, we're a pretty good community as, as a whole, and we could get together, everyone was based around the school, and that's what seems to be happening here at the moment, and it's, it's, it's been really good, but yeah, it's, it's a team effort. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Mohi Beckham there at Silla Farm. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. We're heading now to a deer milking shed near Taupo. It's the tail end of milking at Pamu's Aratiatia deer milking unit, and I'm with farm manager Robbie Smith. I'd never milked deer before I started this, or dairy for that matter. Um, very green to, to dairy and to milk. Initially, I had a giggle about it and thought, you know, this, these guys are crazy um, with my past experience of farming deer. Um, and then sort of the idea sort of grew on me and... Yeah, here I am today, and I, I love it. It's awesome. Um, there's so many unknowns, and there's yeah, so many learnings, and it's yeah, it's great. Robbie certainly knows his deer. He used to work on Palmu's venison farms. The animals about to be milked are the same type, red deer. They're a Landcorp breed from Focus Genetics, and they've got an age structure of sort of from anywhere between a first fauna to a ten-year-old. There's a bit of a variety of age amongst them, and. Yeah, we, we do find initially the younger ones are probably better suited to this because they haven't, they don't know any better, so we're sort of they're more easy, oh, sorry, they're easier to train. So it looks like you have several holding pens before yeah, they actually yeah, get to the yeah, parlour. There's what we call a bit of a breakdown. So we've got a large yard outside, and we, we we take small cuts out of that larger yard, and then they slowly drip into the shed, probably twenty odd at a time. So why do you do it that way? Ah. Uh, just keep them cool, calm and collect, really, yeah. They don't like to be sort of mobbed up and bigger mobs coming to shed. It's sort of, yeah, yeah, we want to look after the girls, so, yeah, we don't want them banging and crashing around and landing on top of each other. Pamu, also known as Landcorp, the state-owned farming enterprise, is in its third season milking here, and they've got a good feel now for what makes a good milking deer. I, I guess trying to find the perfect hind is, um, is hard work. More often than not, the, the better suited ones are sort of have got a little bit of um, go amongst them. Like we've, we've probably taken well, more out that are non-suited because they're too quiet than we have for the from the other end of the scale from being too too flighty. Really? Yeah. Why would too quiet be a problem? Too quiet because we're pushing them around all day. We don't want to be pushing them around all day. It becomes quite long, and sort of we are in the heat of summer usually. Are the deer waiting to come into milking, or do you have to uh, cajole them in? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that that that, that trained like dairy cows just yet, and I, and I think will happen with time. But for now, there's, we, we certainly have to sit behind them and give them a bit of a hurry up to sort of, yeah, it's time to go, girls. We initially we sort of um, gave them treats of deer nuts and stuff like that to sort of help relax them in the stalls, and but we've sort of we've, we've gone away from that now, and we sort of give them their, their treats in the paddock. So what we're going to do now is um, we're going to take one hind up at a time into the into the stall, and it's a pretty simple sort of calm process. It takes five hours to milk the herd of 175 deer. They're milked once a day from January through to May, a much shorter season than for dairy cows. One of the two milking assistants from Wales is there to give a hand. My name is Aled Phillips. I'm from Wales and I'm 20 years old. I've been here now... 11 months I have 
and uh, my visas until November. So, uh, yeah, me and my best friend are over here living the dream. Are you from a farming background yourself? I am, yes. I've worked on a dairy farm for about eight years at home and I've been brought up on a beef farm. So got plenty of livestock experience behind me, I'd like to, like to think. It's very different to what I'm used to, um, animal-wise, but they're all, they all have the same kind of instincts and um, handling deer is something I've never done before and I'd like to think I've become pretty good at it uh, the last few months and being so close to them. In the start, you needed a lot of patience, um, uh, breaking the new deer into the mob especially, um, but it's crazy how well they've adapted to their surroundings and I, I, was, I found it very surprising how easily you could just be around the deer, you know, and how tame they were, especially now. They're running into the parlour and they want to be milked, so we've even given some of them a few names. One of them is called Spud, uh, Chungus is another one. She's quite big, so uh, we gave her the name and, yeah, they stand out from the crowd, so, yeah, they're personalities as well, so... What do your family think when you tell them you're milking deer? Oh, they were loving it, yeah, because obviously it's not something you can do back in Wales. So, uh, yeah, doing it over here, they were like, oh, that's an amazing experience for you. Have you tasted it, the milk? I have. I've had a little sample of it. Uh, I like to put it in the coffee I do sometimes. What does it taste like? Um, it's quite creamy and it's a bit sweeter than cow milk, I like to think. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it, yeah. So we're in a stall with uh, four of the hinds. We are, we are. Pretty cool story here, actually. Um, these four hinds here, uh, three of the four, they come off another, another Pamu farm end of February. Uh, they were just straight venison hinds. They, they were first fawners. And we um, bought them in just to see if we could milk them. And with that, 93% of them let us milk. Um, milk them the day after weaning, which is an awesome result. And um, gave them a new purpose in life. And uh, they love it. Look, they're nice and calm and... Do no, they produce much milk? Uh, in the comparison to dairy, I wouldn't say they do, no. Um, what, what they do produce is very valuable. How much do they produce a day? It is varied. It is varied. Um, yeah, and in comparison Come to on, dairy... Come on, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> You're hiding. I've heard they produce only about a litre a day. Uh, you wouldn't be far off, yeah. Which yeah. is um, quite... Not, not, a, not a huge amount. It's not a huge amount, no. no. But you wouldn't be far off. With the um, culling that you, you must be doing of the, of the herd, yep. are you finding you're able to get that milk production up? Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't use the word culling. We're sort of repurposing these hinds um, from, a, from a venison point of view. So if we can, if we can use them in here, um, we, we'll, we'll milk them. Um, if, if they're not fit for purpose for milking, they'll be sent back onto the hill for, um, to, to live a good life producing venison. Um, so if they don't make the cut, of, what's, the, what's cut, the cut? What's the cut? Our perfect home talk about. So she's, um, so she's got a little bit of go about her, but she's not too calm. And then obviously on the other end, what we talked about, she's not, um, she's not full of flight. And that's pretty uncommon in sort of our pamu herd these days. It's been pretty out of them. Um, not, you know, we, we, we must remember that these hinds are only 50 years out of the bush. They were 50 years ago they were running on top of our um, ranges and hills across New Zealand. Yeah, Have you got an idea of how much uh, they might be producing in future with the right genetics? Uh, if, if we can double it, it'd be a, it'd be a good story. Yeah, it's, a, it's an evolving beast. Um, we're only three years in our project here on Aratea Tia, and every year we've, we're making gains, gen, both genetically and um, 
Yeah, temperament. Well, I mean, it all goes hand in hand, I guess, is temperament. Are these deer, uh, do they go through artificial insemination or no, is it a natural no, breeding? It's all, it's, all na- it's all natural mating. Um, so we, we, we select um, stags from our Pamu stud in the South Island and they're, they're trucked up here. Um, we, 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 we're, we're picking on temperament mainly. We've got, to, we've got to deal with these stags for during mating and they're coming in and out of the shed. We, we try and leave them in the paddock. It's not always... It's not always the case, so they they often do come into the shed during the day with the hinds, and um, we, we they're nice and quiet. We just draft them out. It's sort of our first job of the morning. We we'll send the stags back to the paddock. The deer have blue and green markings on their backs, part of ongoing research at the unit. We're just doing individual samples of these girls um, daily at the moment, um, just trying to understand their their I guess where they where they're falling off as far as the season goes. Um, we're trying to get a better understanding, I guess, of production the, the later part of the season on a daily sense. Tell me about the weaning. At what stage are the fawns weaned? Yep, so, um, so, so they'll start fawning in early November. Um, well, 10th of January, we'll start milking the, the hinds. And we, we've, yeah... We've, we, we share milk what we can with the hind and fawn at foot till sort of late January. Um, so they have, have a lot longer at foot, the fawns, than a calf or the dairy cow? They do, yeah. We're aiming for a 12-week lactation on mum. We're getting a, a beautiful fawn at the end of it. We've got to look after that fawn as well. That, that's our next generation coming through. So, What happens to the fawns once they are weaned? Are we going to have bobby deers? No way, no way. No, there's a huge value in venison. And obviously replacements as well for these to, to replace these girls as they age out. All of the, the fawns would be well, used in the milking herd eventually? They'll be given, a, they'll be they'll given, be given a, chance. a chance. They'll be given a chance. With the deer safely in the stalls, which have high sides to keep them calm and remove any temptation to jump out, we head down to the pit to meet Karina Livesey, who's fitting cups onto their others. Hey, Karina, how are you? I'm good. Good. What are you up to? Now, we're not allowed to show any images of this pit. Why is that, uh, Robbie? Um, I I guess we just have a sense of area with our IP at the moment. Um, It's early days. That's the intellectual property around the whole operation, right? That's right, that's right, yeah. Um, Pretty sensitive. It is sensitive, just just in in the respect that we we are investing a fair bit of money into this at the moment to get it off the ground, and um, I guess our learnings will become uh, hopefully sort of common uh, in time. Contact's minimised with the deer, and Karina has to pass the cups through a hole. Karina's pretty good. She knows the, most of these girls just by their, I guess, the shape and size of their udder. Um, she's doing it most days, and she's definitely got a relationship with each one, and she can almost understand with each hind. How long have you been doing this, Karina? Doing this? Um, oh, only since January but I have prior experience in sheep milking as well as dairy cows. Well, how does it compare to sheep milking? Oh, I milk deer any day. They're just so placid and they just stand there. Um, we are coming to the end of our season, so volumes are down, but there are still some girls really holding on to their milk and um, could go for quite a bit longer, actually. So, But as you can see, you can do anything with them and they just stand there. Karina's here for the full five hours milking, and while she can't see who she's milking, she can make a good guess. There are particular udders that I can recognise who they are. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like, I can predict our best milking hind, what she looks like from behind. Um, 
couple of others that are probably, um, they're not overly jumpy, but you know they might just jump a little bit because they'll get a fright, so you just know to go in quietly with them. And She says not all the others can hold four cups. Well, as you can see, she can hold two quite comfortably on the back and definitely would be able to hold two on the front. Um, but we do have some there that have their back teeth that will just face inwards a little bit or a bit too close together. They probably couldn't hold the four. Yeah. So um, even some of those struggle to hold two, so we have to stagger them off centre. Yeah. Put one on the front and one on the back. Yeah. So, um, but, yeah, if we could get them with four clusters... Of just yeah, you'd be able to up production um, and efficiency of milking. The milk is then gravity fed to a vat, put into small bladders and frozen. At the end of the season, it's turned into powdered form at a plant in Hamilton and used in cosmetics as a nutritional supplement and by dessert chefs. This is where the magic happens. Yeah, this is our, I guess our plant. So we capture all of our milk. Asia is the big market at this stage, and deer milk's potential as a superfood for ageing people is what has Palmu excited. I caught up with Hamish Glendinning, Palmu's business lead for deer milking, to find out more. Since inception, the whole objective has been to back up the benefits of, of deer milk with science, right? And so that was really exciting when we kicked off uh, the clinical trial in partnership with, with Massey University and with funding from High Valley Nutrition. And it was to look at the, the benefits of deer milk from a nutritional perspective and I guess validate that it did improve sort of nutritional status and the physical function of ageing adults. So when we look at the nutritional profile of deer milk, it's really high uh, in protein, it's really high in, in calcium relative to, to other ruminant milks and it also tastes really delicious. And so... Part of our hypothesis was that, you know, because a user or consumer doesn't need to drink large amounts of liquid uh, to get some really great nutritional benefits, it, it had a really interesting um, role to play in, in aged nutrition, where the solutions at the moment are largely, you know, fortified beverages, which don't often have high amounts of compliance. And so the, the, the study was to really validate whether deer milk, when put up against one of these leading oral nutritional supplements, uh, could, could I guess, you know, did it, did it match the benefits there or did it outperform? And we're really excited by, by the results that we got from that, um, particularly around the nutritional status. So things like, you know, grip strength and mobility tests that they did. Uh, and, and also there were some really interesting insights around um, yeah, bone, bone density. So how big is the market then for the milk? I mean, you're sending it off to South Korea and China at this point. How, what is the potential of the market? The potential is huge, Sally. I mean, OK, like I think in New Zealand, we, we sort of sit here and think, you know, deer milk's a bit, a bit different. It's a bit strange. Who's going to consume that? But, you know, when, when you get out and travel to places throughout Asia and see, you know, the affinity which some of these markets have with deer and and the size of these markets and then you you know you work that back into the amount of of milk that we're producing at the moment um that the scale is is it's almost a little bit little bit scary if i'm honest because we've got to to, to balance um the markets that we open up with you know with our ability to supply short term 
Um, so to answer your question, the, the, the market or the opportunity is, is far larger than, than what we can supply. Now, deer do not produce a lot of milk. This seems to be kind of the crunch point for the whole project, really. The yield is not very high and the investment must be huge. Yes, yes. So when you compare it, uh, when you compare deer to other ruminants, uh, the, the, the production or yield, if you like, is, is much lower. We're focused on, on value not volume. So we're trying to, I guess, challenge that that paradigm. We've had experience, I guess, through our involvement with sheep milking to, I guess, witness firsthand the power of of genetics and, you know, selecting uh, based on production traits um, to, to see what sort of improvements we can get there. And, and we're really confident there's, you know, a great opportunity um, to increase from, from where we're at. And, and we're already, you know, seeing improvements year on year um, as we get better at, at selecting hinds um, who are who are good producers so look it's it's not going to be an overnight thing and the important part of it is ensuring that that the price out the other side does warrant the investment and it does create a, a pathway for other farmers to look at this and, and think this could be complementary you know to my business operation are you going to be growing the herd yourself, Palmu, or are you going to be leaving this to other farmers to take up the baton? Absolutely, we're going to be growing in, internally, um, and, and we've, we've got plans under underway um, ahead of ahead of next season. Uh, we also, you know, continue our partnership with with Peter and Sharon McIntyre, who who are a private farming family based out of Gore, who are also. Uh, looking at at ways to to expand their operation, and absolutely, you know, we would entertain um, you know discussions with other third parties or or other private farming organisations around yeah you know, possible expansion of this for sure. Back in the paddock, the mob is getting a feed of deer nuts. Palmu's Jason Halford explains the 200 hectares used to be a support block for Palmu's organic dairy farms. Deer are real grazers, so you know they like to forage around and 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 have different types of feed. So, um, you know, we're basically loose in here, but we'd definitely like to see in the future uh, bringing in some mixed swords and getting some plantain and chicory into that. So, just to give them a, a, something else to eat. Yeah, we're at the tail end of the rut, so we may or may not hear a stag roar. Uh, if we do, it's quite exciting, but it's later in the day now and the chances are slimmer. They're sort of they're pretty exhausted after their uh, yeah, a few weeks of mating that they've already had. Will farmers be persuaded to give it a go? It's niche, intensive, but as Hamish Glendinning says, full of potential. Palmu, as a, as a state-owned enterprise, part of its role is to try some of the hard stuff. Of course, we have to be exemplar farmers and, you know, make a profit, return a dividend. But part of our role is to use our scale as, you know, for in, the, in this case, being New Zealand's largest deer farmer, um, to look at ways in which we can innovate to ensure that, you know, the industry is going to be around in, in, in 50 years' time. And, you know, what you've seen with, with the deer industry over time is, you know, huge cyclical you know, pricing and so we believe that if we can establish a, a new industry or you know, a new market for, for deer milk, um, which can reduce 
volatility and you know improve confidence in their farming then then that's a great outcome and and Palmu you know do have a role to play in that time to put the product to the test should we give it a taste Here you go okay It's quite a different texture from normal cow's milk. It is. Yeah, it's definitely creamy. Um, it's thicker, I think. It's definitely yeah, thicker. It's thicker. I can feel my skin getting younger as I sip. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Sally round sipping some deer milk. And, jokes aside, she did tell me it tasted delicious. Well, that's it for this summer series of Country Life, looking back at some of the stories we've brought you over the past year. Hope you can join us next time when the team is back after a break with more stories from rural New Zealand. From me, Duncan Smith, and the rest of the Country Life team, e kona. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.